to jump into the last couple weeks of a series, as Jason mentioned, that we've been working through for the last couple months entitled The Story, where we're taking a look at the, the grand redemptive historical narrative that the scripture lays out for us. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons that we're working through a series like this. I mentioned this week in and week out. I want to say it again. We're, uh, we're seeking to combat uh, the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of stories haphazardly thrown together. Rather, the Bible is one glorious, overarching, redemptive historical narrative with a really creative, artistic God authoring it. This series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a book of rules. Um, Are there rules in the Bible? Yes and amen to that. But the Bible is not ultimately a book about you and what you do or don't do, but rather a book about God and what he has done for us in Christ. This series is an emphatic response to the cultural belief that the Bible is nothing more than a book of heroes, people meant to emulate, people to model your life after. Are there some heroic people in the Bible? Absolutely. Um, But most of them fall on their faces at some point along the way. The Bible is not ultimately a book of heroes. Rather, it's a redemptive uh, story meant to point us to one true hero who binds the entire story together, and his name is Jesus. We began this series um, talking about uh, the back dust cover about the author snippet. Uh, Anyone should do that when you engage in a good story. You should look at who is the author. Uh, Because his experiences, her experiences, his or her worldview is going to shape that very story. The same is true with the Bible. It just so happens that the Bible's author is the God of the universe. And so we looked at some things that are important for us to understand in terms of who God is and how that shapes this very story that we're uh, looking at over the course of this series. And then after we talk about the author, we spend a couple of weeks looking at the story of creation. Genesis 1 gives us this panoramic view of the story as God creates this stage on which his divine redemptive historical drama is going to play out with stage lights in the form of sun, moon, and stars hanging from the cosmos. God creates the, the domains of uh, sky and land and sea and creates a supporting cast of creatures to inhabit those domains. And then we shift as the, the camera zooms in uh, in Genesis chapter 2 on man in, in this perfect utopian garden sanctuary with his maker. It's much more intimate. You see God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. A garden with a thousand tokens of God's love and provision. And you got that one tree that God says don't eat. And we're all panicked about what's going to happen. Right? If you've been around for this entire series, you know that in Genesis 3, the antagonist, the villain, makes his way into the story. Namely, Satan himself. And he calls into question the trustworthiness of God's word. Did God really say And he paints a picture of this idea of judicial autonomy, of self-determination. Rather than God's world and God's word, this can be your world and your word. And in the moment, the forbidden becomes a delight to the eyes and our first parents sin against God. And they find that they don't feel like God at all. They feel very dirty. They feel very exposed. They feel ashamed. They feel guilty. And they do what most of us do when we see our sin for what it is. They, They attempt to cover it up. The very joy that they were created for to bask in the presence of God is the very thing they run from like a couple of fugitives. All of a sudden, it's a game of hide-and-go-seek with the God of the universe, a game that none of us can win because he knows our hiding spot before he ever, quote-unquote, closes his eyes and, and counts to ten. The perfect utopian garden sanctuary of Eden becomes a courtroom. God's character is at stake. How is he going to respond 
We see him respond as, as both a just judge and a loving father. And so on the one hand, he punishes Eve with the pains of childbearing. He punishes Adam with the toil, with the pain of work. We see the entrance of human conflict, especially uh, in the context of covenant marriage, as cherishing and loving get replaced with ruling and dominating. Man experiences not only spiritual death as the umbilical cord relationally between man and God is severed, but also physical death. The very ground that man was intended to exercise dominion over is the very ground that will swallow him up in death. Even creation itself experiences the effects of the fall. Uh, We see uh, the, the glorious stage of God's redemptive historical drama now filled with thorns and thistles. Everything is broken. Everything. But in the midst of the curse, God also offers hope. Amidst a number of acts of God's grace in Genesis 3 in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin, God makes this glorious promise that that a hero is coming, a descendant of Eve who will crush the serpent's head and set everything right in the end. And so a couple weeks ago, I I laid out this framework for the second half of this series, this idea that the gospel has uh, uh, past tense implications for our lives. It has present tense implications for our lives, and it has future tense implications for our lives. And I, I think oftentimes we truncate the gospel, we, we reduce it to less than it is. The gospel becomes a past and future tense reality where uh, I was saved from sin's penalty. Uh, there was a day when I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, uh, I uh, was converted Uh, I was born again, as Jesus uses the language with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Yes and amen to that. And then there's coming a day when everything sad is going to come untrue. But but then oftentimes there's this lifeless stagnancy uh, in between those two bookends as if the gospel has no implications for our lives, present tense. And so uh, we began a couple of weeks ago looking at the past tense implications of the gospel in saving us from sin's penalty that Romans 5, we, we work through uh, verses 12 through 21, declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise in the garden in Genesis 3, the one who is coming to crush the serpent's head. That Jesus takes the curse in the garden and turns it upside down on its head. Adam sinned, uniting us to himself as, as condemned sinners, yet Jesus obeyed perfectly, uniting to himself and gifting his righteous record to all who will trust in him by faith. In other words, in Adam we stand condemned, but in Christ, by faith alone, we stand justified. That was two weeks ago, past tense. And then last week, we looked at the the present tense implications of of the gospel in that uh, the gospel not only saves us from sin's penalty, past when you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, but it also saves us from sin's power, present tense. Paul says in Romans 6, uh, sin will have no dominion over you if you are in Christ. That Jesus didn't just remove our guilty verdict before God. He also removed the shackles of sin so that sin no longer enslaves the Christian. We're now free with our hands to enjoy making much of God forever. And so now for the last two weeks, we shift into future tense Mode. We'll take a look into the future, the eradication of sin and evil forever as we're saved from sin's presence. God making everything sad untrue. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 21. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. It's near the very back of the Bible just before the maps of Paul and the index and all that 
jazz. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you for free. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. God, thank you for giving us a glimpse at all of what the future will look like for those who are in Christ. You could have just left the whole thing up to speculation, just said it's going to be really sweet, but it's going to be a complete surprise altogether. But you didn't do that. You gave us a taste, a, a glimpse, an unveiling of, of some of what is to come. And yes, there is a great deal of mystery as we look at the doctrine of the new heavens and earth, the doctrine of the last things, the end times. There's a great deal of mystery, which is good. Uh, but there are things that you've revealed to us in the scriptures, and we thank you for that. And I pray that uh, as we dive into Revelation chapter 21 this morning, that we would be greatly encouraged um, that those who are suffering right now, experiencing pain, experiencing hurt, those who are in the midst of crying a lot of tears based on the present tense reality that they are going through, uh, would be reminded that there is coming a day when everything sad will come untrue and it will be quite glorious for those who are in Jesus. And that for those who are not in Jesus, uh, those who come in this morning not professing uh, to know and love and, and follow Jesus would be compelled um, by uh, not only the glory and wonder of the new heavens and earth, but the one uh, who will sit at the center of it, uh, namely you, God, yourself, will be compelled by you and by your word this morning. God, would you do a work in our hearts by the power of your spirit? We lift these things up in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So here we go. This is banner number four over here. We're at the end. We're, we're in the home stretch this is the act of restoration, the final act in this grand redemptive historical drama. For the next two weeks, this is where we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Chapter 21 this week, chapter 22 next week. We're going to close out the scriptures all together. It's not revelations, plural. It's revelation, um, meaning one massive unveiling of unseen realities. Let me, let me begin with a question this morning. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of an unveiling? For me, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's the show Fixer Upper. I know who Chip and Joe are. Um, it's like 50 minutes of watching this, this show. What's the project going to be? And then we, we watch them work on the project for 50 solid minutes. And then for the last, if you eliminate the commercials, really, the last five minutes, you, you get the big unveiling, right? They, they remove the curtain, so to speak, and all of a sudden we get to see um, all of the work in all of its finished glory. We get to look at the outside of the home that they've worked on, and, and then we get to walk in and, and look at the inside of the house and all of the decor and all of the things that they've done to make this, this place beautiful, a dwelling for uh, an individual or, or a family to inhabit for what they hope is uh, maybe the rest of their days, a forever home, you might say. We, we love unveilings. We're drawn to them, right? There, there's something about us, especially as it pertains to eternal things. Um, we're drawn to books written by people who had a near-death experience and claim to have seen heaven or hell. Uh, a new book comes out about every three or four months with that subject matter um, as the, the idea driving the very work itself. We're drawn to interviews on shows like Dateline and, and 2020 with claims of uh, people who have ha happen to have seen the afterlife or declare that at least that they have. Or maybe you've been on the other side of the conversation. You, 
you've been somewhere amazing and you, you have this desire to unveil your experience to other people. We do this all the time, right? Um, ultimately and predominantly through social media. So you go on a vacation um, to somewhere that, that's uh, incredible, maybe that other people haven't experienced. And, and all of a sudden you provide an opportunity for them to live vicariously through you. You know, all of a sudden, uh, my sister uh, about a year ago went to Spain, and, and I get to live a trip to Spain through her as she's taking me through her pictures and, and telling me all about her experience. Some of us who have bigger egos do it with our meals. Right? For those of you who are friends of, of mine on Facebook, you, you saw our, our Orlando experience. Um, was just a lot of pictures of food. So, such so that you may be inclined to ask, did they c- commit the sin of gluttony over the weekend on their trip? I don't think we did. We talked about as much as we, we ate over those tables of good food. But, but we do that, right? We, um, before we even take the first bite to affirm that it's a good meal, we take a picture because we don't want to ruin the image, right? The aesthetic is amazing. This may be the most disgusting thing that I'm about to put in my mouth, but I want you to see it. And I I want you to be envious of the fact that you're not experiencing this meal that may or may not be good but looks beautiful. That's how we do social media, right? And there is a bit of an ego involved in that, is there not? Because when we post those pictures, what we're saying to some extent is, look at what I'm eating that you're not eating right now. Enjoy your hot dog. Enjoy your macaroni and cheese, right? That's, That's what we do. We unveil, and the human ego even comes to bear in our unveilings. This book of the Bible is an unveiling of the king. It's an unveiling of his throne. It's an unveiling of his kingdom. It's an unveiling of his victory over evil. If you've ever thought to yourself, I wonder what heaven is like, you get a glimpse of it this morning. And going into next week, we get a second glimpse of it, of everything sad coming untrue. So look at verse 1 with me. The apostle John says this, Then I saw. So in context, the Apostle John, who experiences this unveiling firsthand, has just seen something. The question begs to be answered, what is he seeing? And the answer is a lot of stuff. Okay, Go back and read chapters 1 through 20. There's a lot there. To answer that question in its fullness would require me to preach through Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 20. And that's not the scope of what we're after for this particular series. I'll go ahead and set the expectation this morning to say, if you walk away and you go, man, there's a lot more to mine there than than what we mined. Uh, You're absolutely correct. There is. If we were going to work through a series on the book of Revelation, we'd probably spend three or four weeks in chapter 21 alone. And so what what I want you to see is is how this connects to the rest of the story this morning, okay? That's the scope of what we're after in this particular series. And uh, we believe in preaching the whole counsel of God's word. So at some point, we will come back around to the book of Revelation and come after it with a greater degree of depth and and detail. But keep in mind the the scope of what we're after in terms of this particular uh, series uh, where we're looking at the redemptive historical drama, God's story. One thing that is helpful to mention is that uh, John has just seen in the previous chapter, chapter 20, the final destruction of all of God's enemies, Satan, death, evil. In, In order to create eternal peace for his followers, Jesus must eradicate evil. And thus chapter 20 paints this beautiful picture of the final crushing of the serpent's head promised in Genesis chapter 3, going back to a few weeks ago in this series. That the death blow was delivered at the cross, And now evil takes its final breath. I would encourage you to go back and read chapter 20 this week, especially if you just can't stand Satan. Just go read about his final breath. It's incredible. 
John says in light of that, verse 1, then, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Remember, in the garden, uh, even creation was cursed in the wake of sin. Right? Romans 8, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Creation was in bondage to corruption, Paul says, groaning in the pains of, of childbirth, the same language of, of Eve's curse in Genesis 3. But John sees something very different here in this unveiling. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. The rest of this morning's passage gives us the details of the new heaven and the new earth. Some people, um, some people take the verse 1 to mean that, that God's just going to wipe out planet earth altogether and start all over. But I don't think that captures the heart of Romans 8 at all. In fact, Romans 8 goes on to say that creation as we know it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So, so Paul seems to think that God is going to redeem this world. That we're not going to float away to some other world. Uh, we're not going to be uh, tiny, chubby, angelic babies, you know, just kind of fluttering for eternity. Like you see in the pictures, that's not, that's not how this is going to go. Um, rather, God's going to renew the entire created order as we know it. Similar to our resurrection bodies, you could say there, there will be an element of continuity and an element of discontinuity. Um, anyone remember this image up on the screen from the First Corinthians series? The week that we talked about the resurrection of the body, what we will experience uh, futuristically, our glorified bodies. This is a kernel of, of wheat. Um, no, nothing very outstanding about that, right? Very simple, very small, very insignificant to some extent. And, and yet, if you plant enough of those, this is what you get. You get a, a glorious, beautiful, golden wheat field. Right, you see continuity. A kernel of wheat doesn't grow into an apple tree. That would be super weird and frustrate farmers to no end, would it not? A kernel of wheat grows into a stalk of wheat. That's how God designed things to work. Yet you see discontinuity. The field is something very different from the kernel. It's something more glorious than the kernel, you might say. That with respect to our resurrection bodies, God's not starting from scratch. He's raising our old perishable bodies and changing them. In, in other words, God's idea of resurrection is not the idea of a totally new creation, but rather a changing, a redeeming of the old creation. The same thing that's true of our resurrection bodies is true of creation itself. That the original creation didn't have thorns or thistles, right? There were no floods. There was no, there was no drought. When Jesus returns, creation itself will be transformed, freed from the effects of sin. Cre creation itself will, in a blink, become more beautiful and efficient for the purposes of eternity. You, you could say it this way. Creation will be adorned with adjectives that suit it to be in the presence of God forever. That God's not scrapping planet earth and starting over. We're not going to float away to heaven. He's redeeming his original creation, which he pronounced good and making it exponentially better. He's transforming it into an eternal dwelling place for his people. John goes on to say, and the sea was no more. What, do, what does that mean? What do we do with that? Does that mean all the ocean lovers in the world are going to be eternally bummed out forever? Is that, I mean, that, that, would, that just seems not to fit in Revelation 21, right? If that's, 
That's what we're after. I mentioned this when we talked about the, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 last summer. That the sea was a symbol of chaos for the Israelites. When you look at the scriptures, the picture of the sea is, is one of chaos. Um, the, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. In fact, the one time they had a navy under Solomon's reign, uh, they actually hired sailors from Tyre and Sidon to function as their navy. Um, remember the disciples' great fear uh, when they were with Jesus on the sea and a great storm arose? If God intends to redeem his original creation, which he pronounced good, I have a really hard time believing that he's just going to scrap the ocean altogether. Remember in the story of creation, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, that panoramic uh, layout of the creation story as God is creating the stage on which this uh, divine redemptive historical drama is going to play out, God says this, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. Listen to this. He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Right? Even a caveman could get this sea good. You know, like it's a good thing that God created the sea. Before rebellion ever even came into the picture, God created the sea and he declared it to be good. And so I'm inclined to think that this language in Revelation 21 is symbolic of chaos that uh, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, uh, the the, the language of the sea is used in symbolic terms. In other words, that God's going to take this symbol of chaos, the sea as we know it, and restore it to order. I don't know if you're one who keeps up with the news. Um, If you do, you see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, right? That's most of what makes up the news as we know it present day. And so oftentimes it's hard for our hearts to really engage and, and feel uh, empathetic towards those tragedies over and over and over and over again. But every once in a while, um, a story will prick our hearts, right? Um, a, a week ago, I experienced that uh, with the, the story of a woman on uh, the Carnival cruise ship entitled Carnival Liberty. Her name was Samantha Broberg. I don't know if you saw this story, but Uh, Apparently, sometime late in the night, around 2 a.m., at the beginning of uh, last weekend, uh, two Fridays ago, uh, 2 a.m. in the morning, she jumped up on the railing of a deck and fell overboard into the ocean, Gulf of Mexico, 200 miles away from shore. Um, No one uh, was able to affirm that she had disappeared until 5 p.m. the next day, upon which they sent the Coast Guard out for several days. She was nowhere to be found. And I remember thinking for several days there as as I followed this story, I wonder what that woman experienced. I mean, my hope is that uh, if they weren't going to find her, that that she just died upon impact. Because I'm imagining that as she hit the the ocean and, and found that ship, you know, in her vision just getting smaller and smaller, what would that have been like? To look around at the ocean and, and to go, what was once my friend is now my enemy. As I stand on the shores and look out uh, on the the vast expanse of the ocean, there are times that I experience uh, just a marveling at God in those moments, right? But for this woman in that moment, it must have been a moment of terror for her to think that it's a battle between me and the sea, and if someone doesn't get here quickly, the sea is going to win. What Revelation 21 says is no more death, no more chaos, No more disorder, no more destruction. Rather, the new heaven and earth will be a place of peace and stability. 
Vern Poitras says this in his commentary on this particular chapter of the Bible. He says, some people are prone to worry about the loss of things from this life. Indeed, we must be prepared to give up everything for the sake of loyalty to Christ. But in the process, we will find that nothing of genuine value or beauty is permanently lost. After all, God in his beauty and majesty is the source for all beauty and joy that we have as creatures. Living in the presence of God in the new world means bathing in the source of the river, in comparison with which the joys of earth are but a few drops of muddied water. That's cool. We do not know the details of what God will do and how he will do it, but we know that his presence is consummate joy. We will have no regrets or unsatisfiable longings in the new heaven and earth. Simply put, heaven will be glorious because God will be there. He goes on to say, and you're wondering now, are we going to get out by lunch? And the answer is yes, I promise. This gets uh, exponentially faster as we work through this passage of the Bible. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here again, you have this language, not of us floating away to heaven, but rather heaven coming down to earth. And, and notice that the new Eden is no longer an uncultivated garden, but rather a city prepared by God himself. For those of you who, who love urban, there you go. It's going to be amazing. Unlike Genesis 11, where man attempted to build a tower ascending uh, to heaven for his own glory, here you have uh, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven for God's glory. We also get this language of the bride and the groom personalizing this glorious moment in redemptive history. Perfect intimacy between God and man forever. God's people in God's forever place in a forever covenant with him. He's not going anywhere, and neither are you. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You remember the loss of intimacy with God in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, for those of you who have been along for this series from the start. Man hiding among the trees like a couple of fugitives running from God. No more running. No more hiding. We don't have to. We're not inclined to. We who are in Christ will dwell with God forever. No fear of being banished from his presence ever again. Nothing standing in the way of intimacy between you and God. We will be his forever people and he will be our forever God. Just so you know, verse 3 is the greatest gift that the gospel affords us. Everything else in this passage is secondary to verse 3. Basking in the presence of God forever. That's ultimately what the gospel is about. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anywhere for the former things have passed away. Do do you see the reverse of the curse in Genesis 3 here? Look, Look at the language. Think about Genesis 3, sin entering the story. Tears, death, mourning, crying. Pain. These are all words associated with the fall of man. God says, I'm going to eradicate all of that with such finality that it will never be felt, any of those things, ever again. Anyone had a good cry lately over the fact that the world's just not as it should be? John says, no more tears. Anyone grieve the loss of a loved one in recent history? John says in verse 4, no more death. Anyone mourn the effects of sin in your own life or the life of someone close to you? John says, no more mourning, no more sorrow. 
Anyone experience emotional, physical, psychological hurt in recent history? No more pain. All of those things that make the world sad, broken, ugly, disjointed, eradicated forever. Another way we could say it, said it this morning once before, everything sad will come untrue. For some of us, I think we need to write that on, a, on a, an index card and just put it on the dash of our car, mirror of our bathroom. Everything sad will come untrue. We need to be reminded. That idea that, that when you think of eternal things, you're no earthly good, that's crazy. That's the worst false dichotomy I've ever heard. When you think of the eternal, it sets you up for the, the temporal really well. Notice the intimate language here in verse 4, similar to verse 3, that, that marriage language. He said, it says, uh, not that you will wipe away the final tear with your sleeve. That's not how it's going to go down. God will personally wipe away the final tear of sorrow from your eyes. Think about the comfort when you were a child of mom or dad wiping away your tears in a moment of hurt, in a moment of pain. Verse 4 says God will do that, and it will be exponentially more comforting. The love of God expressed in unbelievably close proximity. He will personally wipe away your tears. Verse 5. Then he was, who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Verses 5 and 6 are meant to answer the question, how can we trust that all of this is going to happen? Every good fairy tale has a king and a kingdom and a damsel in distress, at least as far as I'm concerned. Verses 5 and 6 are God's way of saying, I'm the king in this real-life fairy tale. I'm on the throne and my plans cannot be thwarted. Going back to week one of this series, God was around before anything else was. He's the Alpha the beginning. But he says here, I'm not just the one whose existence predates the foundations of the world. I'm also the omega. I'm the end. I'm the consummator of all things. In other words, I'm not just the first word. I'm also the last word. My promises will come to fulfillment. You can count on that, God says. He goes on to say, to the thirsty, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Living water. Does that sound familiar? Remember the woman at the well, John chapter 4? Jesus encounters this woman. She's on her sixth husband-to-be, so to speak. Jesus says to her, you can keep drawing from this well, ma'am, and you'll just keep finding yourself thirsty over and over and over and over again. Or I can give you living water, and you'll never be thirsty again. Obviously, he's talking about himself there. These words in verse 6 communicate this idea of being eternally satisfied in God. Think, think about a tall glass of, of water in a moment that you're completely parched. Right? Recent history, I'm sure we've experienced that. It's hot out there, right? You ever have a moment where you're just, man, I could just guzzle a glass of water in a matter of seconds. All right, now mul multiply the satisfaction in taking that first sip times infinity, that's what, that's what this particular verse is communicating to us. That's the satisfaction that you'll experience in the presence of God. How do we acquire this eternal satisfaction offered by God? 
Verse 6, this is the gospel. We're told that it's given without payment. You can't, you can't buy it. You, you can bring all of your accomplishments to the feet of God, and no matter how big the pile is, it won't buy you a ticket into the new Jerusalem. It won't buy you a ticket into what is being unveiled in Revelation chapter 21. The new Jerusalem is for those who have come to the realization that they can never afford a ticket on their own. That's what the gospel says. The new Jerusalem is for those who, who by faith trust that Jesus is their only hope for entrance into this eternal city. That he lived a life that we could never live, a perfect, sinless life. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place, but he didn't stay dead. Rather, he conquered sin and death, our great enemies, making a way for us to be restored to God forever. The only thing that we bring to the table is our sin and the empty hands of faith. For those who turn to Jesus in faith, they shall be eternally satisfied. Verse 7 The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We talked about this last week, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Paul says. He said it this way in Romans 6. We looked at this last week. Sin will have no dominion over you. It won't. That those who are in Christ will persevere as conquerors to the end. Now here the language is even more intimate than the language of being God's people. Now he uses the language of sonship, of adoption. It's unbelievable. That that according to the gospel, we were all pagans in a proverbial back alley diving into the dumpsters of depravity. And in his grace, God reached down through the person and work of Jesus and adopted us in as his sons and daughters and gave us a home. We were once dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive. And now we're children of God. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. You're a walking miracle. You ever thought about that? He brought you in. He gave you a home. He gave you hope. From fatherless to the God of the universe calling you his child. That's unbelievable. Only the gospel can do that. Man can't claw his way to that identity, to that status. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. At first glance, this verse sounds like a major buzzkill, does it not? I mean, look at everything we've been talking about for seven verses. This verse seems like, how did this one sneak its way into, into chapter 21? Creation regained, renewed, no more chaos, no more, no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, eternal dwelling with God, eternal satisfaction in God, sons, daughters, safe in the arms of our Father, and now the death of sinners forever. Why in the world is verse 8 not a major buzzkill? I think the answer is this. If God doesn't follow through with verse 8, Verses 1 through 7 are nothing but empty promises. That you cannot have a world with murderers, with idolaters, with liars, with those who, like Adam and Eve, want to live a life of self-determination, a life of judicial autonomy, functioning as their own gods. You can't live in a world like that and expect that world to look anything like the picture God paints in verses 1 through 7. That it's precisely by eradicating evil, that God will create eternal peace and bliss for his followers, that verse 8 actually gives us hope that verses 1 through 7 
will come true. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So now you get a detailed description of the city and her inhabitants. And notice the first descriptor. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. That the most glorious aspect of the eternal city of God is that it shines with his glory and will forever. I mentioned this as well uh, during the series on the seven churches in Revelation last summer, that jasper is a, it's a translucent stone, which means it's semi-transparent. Um, it allows light to pass through, but it diffuses the light so that what's on the other side isn't clearly visible. An example of, of something translucent uh, would be a stained glass window. Okay, so think in, in that terminology. And, and so you have this light refra- refracting thing going on so that if you were to move an inch to the left... Everything would radiate with a different brilliance than it did when you were an inch to the right a moment before. Without pressing the symbolism too much, the very design of the internal city is such that we will be stunned by the brilliance of God's splendor forever. That every time you move an inch, you'll be mind blown all over again. That's awesome. He's the source of light. He's the source of majesty. He's the source of splendor. He'll never bore you in the new heavens and the new earth. If you have this idea that heaven will be boring, it's because you don't have a big enough view of God. Verse 12, it had a great high wall, this city, with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east Uh, Three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city, verse 14, had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, a couple things here. Uh, First of all, the eternal city of God will be impenetrable. In the same way that, that the cherubim, remember Genesis 3? Sin and its curse. The cherubim guarded the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. In the same way, the eternal city will be guarded by a host of angels. No need to fear that your experience of being stunned by the brilliance of God will be disrupted. It won't. Not not that the city has a need of protection. We'll find out in just a few verses later that the gates are open. that, That we're not really worried about evil entering in. Evil will be eradicated from God's presence forever. But I think the imagery is meant to remind us that for eternity, we'll be safe in the arms of God. Second of all, the word 12 shows up six times in these three verses. So I think God's trying to tell us something. When he repeats himself that many times, he's trying to communicate something. Is it, is it simply that God loves the number 12? Was that Jesus' jersey number when he was a kid? You know, And now he's, he's trying to incorporate that number in as much as he possibly can in the scriptures from that point on. No, the 12 tribes of Israel formed God's people in the Old Testament, right? And the church, under the teaching of the 12 apostles, forms God's people in the New Testament. So, in a sense, you have the representation of God's people all together in one place, the eternal city. If you love community, that's good news. In another sense, who's the cornerstone of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, according to Paul in Ephesians? Christ alone, right? Right? cornerstone 
It explains why in verse 14, the description is that of the, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, capital L. Who's the Lamb? Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, the foundation of the eternal city, the reason we have any hope of obtaining entrance. Again, there's a gospel declaration to be made there in verse 14. Moving on, and we move into fifth gear here now. Verse 15 And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Some people want to debate uh, the size of the eternal city, the new Jerusalem, and try to figure out how many people you could squeeze into that and what kind of proximity, like are we going to get a, how many square footage are we going to be sleeping in, you know? And, um, and, and I don't think that's the, the main focus of verses 15 through 17, although we can say that the new Jerusalem is going to be massive. Even if you laid symbolism aside and took these verses literally, which usually is the smaller of the two measurements, 12,000 stadia, just to give you an idea, is the equivalent of roughly 1,400 miles. Or, on a U.S. map, the distance between New York City and Miami. Okay, so take that distance and now move it east-west and create a square and urbanize the whole thing. That's a huge city, if we're talking literal here. But again, I don't think that's what the Apostle John was after in these verses what God was after in terms of communicating truth to us. I think the more glorious truth that we're meant to see in verses 15 through 17 is this. The city, if you notice, is in the shape of a cube. It says its length and width uh, width and height are, are equal. That shape is the same shape as the Holy of Holies in both the tabernacle and the temple, except now immensely larger, the entire city itself. Remember, we talked about this in this series before. Um, the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, you had the, the holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies. The holy place was where the priests would do their daily duties, offering sacrifices and whatnot. But the most holy place, the holy of holies, was only to be entered by the high priest and only once a year to offer sacrifices on the day of atonement. We're meant to see a limited access to God's presence when we see the tabernacle and the temple laid out. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two, right? We've talked about that as well in this series, that the veil separating man from the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom completely, that Jesus removed every obstacle that stands in man's way of enjoying uh, the presence of God forever. I think that's what John is ultimately out to communicate in verses 15 through 17. He's saying that the new Jerusalem, the eternal city, it is the Holy of Holies, Nothing separating you from God's presence. You're in an eternal temple forever with with God in your line of sight forever. That's unbelievable. Especially when you go back to banner number two here, where where we ended that particular act, the angel standing with a sword in hand, keeping us away from the garden, no way of entering in. Now all of a sudden, unlimited access to God. You're meant to be filled with joy at the thought that there will be nothing getting in the way of an intimate relationship between you and God. You ever read your Bible and God gone, man, didn't really feel the presence of God today. That stinks, right? Never again. No more. You will always feel an intimacy with God. Uninterrupted. Verse 18. 
The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, not to be confused with crystal light, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. In one sense, these verses are just another declaration of God's beauty, of his majesty, of his splendor. No second-rate materials used in, in the building of this particular city. But there's also this interesting subtle detail that the list of the 12 jewels here corresponds roughly to the 12 jewels that were included in the breastplate of, of the, the priest in the Old Testament, of the high priest, um, if you go back to the book of Exodus. And so many theologians believe that there are two tandem truths side by side in this chapter of the Bible, both looking back to the Old Testament, that you have this perfect cube communicating that we're in the temple and we're in the most intimate part of the temple, and that's eternity, us with God uninterrupted in his presence, basking in his glory. But that secondly, in these verses, 18 through 21, the 12 jewels that once adorned the high priest's breastplate tell us that what once belonged to the high priest, now belongs to all of us. Not just one man once a year experiencing the presence of God. Rather, all of us direct access to God forever. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There there is no temple because God is present in all of his fullness in the entire city. You don't have to worry about if you're going to get a good seat In the new Jerusalem, every seat's going to be great. Uninterrupted, direct access to God forever. Verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. I love this verse. Remember how I said in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as the stage upon which his divine redemptive historical drama would play out. And, And part of that set design was God hanging sun and moon and stars from outer space. As his stage lighting? Well, in the New Jerusalem, the brightness of God's splendor and glory will make sun non-essential. Moon, non-essential. Stars, non-essential. You ever stood in awe of the moon on a bright night? You ever had one of those moments? You ever laid under the stars at night and found yourself just basking in that canopy of light? You ever gotten into a staring contest with the sun and found yourself losing really quickly because the brightness was too much to bear? All of that cosmic lighting will look like a keychain flashlight in comparison to the glory of God. Verse 24. By its light, the light of God's glory, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Okay? So you have a global, diverse citizenship that will comprise the new Jerusalem. If you don't like ethnic diversity, you probably will not like heaven. And here's the problem for the racist. Hell's going to be just as ethnically diverse. So the racist can't win either way. God loves to save people from all walks of life. 
puts on his, uh, display his great sovereignty, his great power. There's no line in the sand that the gospel can't cross to save people. There's no type of person on this planet that God isn't capable of saving. Revelation 7, 9, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. I don't know about you, man. I can't wait to be a part of that cultural melting pot. To sit down over, I pray there's coffee in heaven. I don't think I'll need it, but I like the taste of it. It can be decaf. I'm, I'm good with that. But, but I'm just envisioning all of these cups of coffee with the saints from all over the globe and hearing stories of how the gospel worked in their hearts to bring them to Christ Jesus. That will be amazing. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. This city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John closes this chapter with yet another another sober warning. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enjoy everything that Revelation chapter 21 depicts. John refers to this book in Revelation uh, 13:8 as the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So it's all about the faith in Jesus, uh, our uh, substitute sin bearer who was slain in the place of sinners like you and me. The innocent one slain for the guilty. Through his vicarious death, he's made a way for us to uh, enjoy basking in the presence of God forever. And so as we close this morning, if if you don't know him, I would implore you to come to him with nothing more than your sin in the empty hands of faith and give your life to him. And if you do know him, let's worship him. Let's, let's practice for eternity in, in the coming moments. Let's, let's make this practice as we, as we sing to him. And not just as the church gather, but as we leave this place. And as we engage in tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Do you see how Christianity is so much more robust than oftentimes we, we think it is? The gospel matters for you tomorrow. The worship of God tomorrow is practiced for eternity and Tuesday and the mundaneness of your Thursday afternoon and on and on we could go. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Uh, We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We do so to remember and celebrate uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, During this time, I I would just... Again, implore you to, uh, to dwell on all that is yours in Christ and ultimately that the gain is God himself and that Christ has afforded you entrance into that eternal city. And if you're not a Christian, um, again, I would implore you to, to look to Jesus for hope. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.